please stand if you are able for a reading from the God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. Andrei will read each verse in Ukrainian, and then I will lead us in reading it in English. Please read with me the verses in bold. Року смерти царя Озії бачив я Господа, що сидів на високому та піднесеному престолі, а кінці одежі його переповнювали храм. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Серафими стояли зверху його, по шість крил у кожного, двома закривав обличчя своє, двома закривав ноги свої, а двома літав. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. І кликав один до одного і говорив: Свят, свят, свят Господь Саваоф, уся земля повна слави його. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with his glory. І захиталися чопи порогів від голосу того, хто кликав, а храм переповнився димом. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Тоді я сказав, горе мені, бо я занапащений, бо я чоловік нечистоустий, і сиджу посеред народу нечистоустого, а очі мої бачили царя, господа Саваота. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. My, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. І прилетів до мене один із серафімів, а в руці його вугіль розпалений, якого він узяв щепцями з наджертвника. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. І він доторкнувся до уст моїх та й сказав, ось доторкнулося це твоїх уст, і відійшло беззаконня твоє, і гріх твій окуплений. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. І почув я голос Господа, що говорив, кого я пошлю, і хто піде для нас? А я відказав, ось я, пошлите мене. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here this morning with us. Uh, thank you, Mary and Andre, for reading that, uh, how encouraging that is to hear the Word of God in different languages. Uh, the God that we serve is a, is a God of the nations, and uh, it's pretty wonderful that we get to do that this morning. Uh, would you join me in prayer as we begin our time in the Word? 
Uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. We have this kind of God who has always existed, who exists now, and will continue to exist into eternity. And we have a God who does not change like shifting shadows. We have a God who is stable and constant and faithful. We worship this kind of God. And we worship now as we do uh, every Sunday with the saints who have gone before with a great cloud of witnesses who have uh, passed us. And we also worship with those in different time zones and different countries and different languages. And we all say the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Be with us this morning as we worship. God, be with us as we hear your word. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts. God, make our ears attentive to what you say. Thank you for this time together. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in the second or third grade, my family and I took a road trip to go see the Grand Canyon. At that point, we had been in the States for only about two or three years, but it was one of those places that my parents had to see. We caravaned with two other families and made the journey to see the majestic wonder of the Grand Canyon. If you've never been there, it's quite the vision to behold. But when you're seven or eight, It's just nice-looking rocks. <laughs> no, it wasn't Disneyland. It wasn't a good baseball game on TV. It certainly wasn't Chuck E. Cheese. I would have settled for Chuck E. Cheese. It was just beautifully formed rocks. Well, that is until I got a little older. And during my seminary years, I had the chance to see it again, maybe with renewed perspective, perhaps a little bit more maturity. Would it be different the second time around? I had opportunity to take a group of youth to do some missions work among Native American tribes in Arizona and thought it was a great excuse to make a trip out of it to see the Grand Canyon on our drive back. And yes, the views were breathtaking. And you and I both know that words fail to describe what you're seeing. Many have attempted to describe in words the wonder that is the Grand Canyon. Well, here are the words from the travel sites that I found. One of the seven natural wonders of the world, northern Arizona's Grand Canyon, puts the grandiosity of Mother Nature in perspective and serves as a window into the region's geological and cultural past. Among the country's first national parks, the Grand Canyon has long been considered a U.S. treasure and a very vast one at that. Its immense size leaves many visitors awestruck. But even this doesn't do it justice. What words might we use to describe it? Beautiful, Amazing, immense, 
colorful, magical, majestic, stunning. When you take your first steps to view the canyon, you can't help but stare in wonder. It literally takes your breath away. It's beautiful and vast. And my friends, it's not just beautifully colored rocks. It is, but it's more. It's, it's humbling. It has a way of putting you in your place and reminding us of where we stand. It reorients our, our ego. The Grand Canyon is probably the most unique and natural phenomenon in the world I've ever seen. The stunning, uh, enormous flame-colored walls of plunging nearly a mile down into the gorge of the Colorado River is absolutely intriguing. It has to be the most astonishing rock formation and feature of exposed layers of, of colorful rocks in the world. I mean, kind of want to go see it now, don't you? It really leaves you at a loss for words. Words don't do it justice. Even a picture cannot adequately express its beauty. You can almost imagine the same sort of beauty and awe that overtakes Isaiah the prophet as he looks upward towards heaven and gets a glimpse of that throne room of God in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Isaiah had been privy to the kings of, of Judah. He had access to the kings of Judah. But this encounter is unlike all others. Isaiah meets God, the God who is, and the scene of God's holiness overwhelms this prophet, and he meets the king of kings, and by what the text tells us, in God's holiness. In verse 3, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We hear that word holy in this particular section, and that word holy is a big word. We attach it to all sorts of words, frivolously and, and casually and carelessly, to unholy words. It's a word used to describe the character of God. You see, it's holiness, the holiness of God that makes God God. No other attribute, mind you, in all of Scripture is used in a three times repeated fashion of who He is than His holiness. Ever think about that? Holy, holy, holy. Found in the book of Isaiah, and we read it this morning um, in the book of Revelation. But on two separate occasions, in the Old Testament and the New, again, it's repeated in in a three-time fashion to express the attributes of God, who God is. And it's interesting, it's profound, I think, in that no other attribute of God is said three times like this. It's not said in Scripture that God is love, love, love. The Beatles do, right? All we need is love, love, love. All you need is love. No. 
There's no mercy either. It's not God is mercy, 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 or God is justice, justice, justice. But it does express that God is holy, holy, holy. So let's work on a definition of, of holiness. And holiness, is, again, is the most difficult, I think, of attributes to, this, to define because it deals with the essence of God's character. You see, because defining holiness is like defining God. It can't be done well. It can't be done completely. We can describe holiness and find many illustrations for it, but we cannot define it in its entirety because, again, this is what makes God God. It's His holiness. In one sense, the word itself means to be set apart. A thing is holy if it's set apart for a special use. Other words you might use are words like distinctive or, or different. These are words that we might use to describe holiness. Applied to God, holiness is that characteristic that sets him apart from his creation. There is a sense in which God cannot be categorized or classified. He cannot be buttoned down or neatly put in a box for our comprehension. He cannot be fully known, not to the extent of his majesty or his immensity. Words are insufficient describe or attempt to describe or define God, and, and there's no way that I'm going to do that here in 30 minutes or less. The holiness of God tells us that He is unlike any other, that there's no one like Him, that there's no one like God. But in the second definition, we might say of holiness that it's, again, this idea of being utterly pure or separated from sin. The Bible tells us that God hates sin that he cannot uh, stand sin or, uh, or even tempt others to sin. God is so pure that he cannot tolerate sin any, in any form in his presence. And one day he will destroy sin forever. And Isaiah gets at both of these definitions as we look at Isaiah chapter 6 about the holiness of God. That's why Isaiah responds to this vision of God. He meets God in the temple. And what is his response? He says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I'm a man of, of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my, people, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The prophet tells us that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. The note is important because Uzziah was one of the best kings of Judah that Judah ever had. He had a heart for God unlike the predecessors before him and the successors after him. And when he died, the nation was plunged into turmoil, a golden age in which Israel's history was drawing to a close. And again, the question that, again, as, we're, as, as posed in Isaiah chapter 6 is, will the people of God return to idolatry or continue to walk with God? In that fateful moment, Isaiah comes face to face with the living God. In a sense, the holiness of God overwhelms the prophet. He thinks about the majesty of God, and he thinks about his loneliness. He thinks about the holiness of Yahweh and sees his own cleanness, uncleanness. He thinks about the beauty and dignity of the Lord and then saw his own ugliness, the blackness of his soul. He saw his impurity. He saw his depravity, a man undone. Our version says lost, but again, uh, many versions will say uh, undone. He was scared to death. 
He's responding to you as you and I have responded when we, when we sent something, in the, something of the presence of God or the majesty of God or the, the greatness of God or the holiness of God that somehow or another in ourselves, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our guilt, we dare not come into His presence because of His holiness. My friends, we are a people. We are a culture of comparers. We compare our actions to those of others to see whether we are acting right. And quite honestly, compared to all the people in the world, Isaiah was probably one of the best there was. And when he saw the glory of God, all of a sudden, he sees his own lowliness. John Fisher, one of the books I've enjoyed reading, uh, he has a book called 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee Like Me. (laughs) Let me read that uh, portion of of, uh, his book for you. It says, uh, the act of judging gives us a subjective means of affirming ourselves. No matter what I've done or how bad I am, I can always comfort myself by finding someone out there who is worse than I am. Maybe many. I can also bring down those who appear to be more worthy than me by finding or manufacturing some flaw in their character to be more, uh, I'm sorry, flaw in their character that allows me to be better than they are in my mind. This is the means by which we establish a pharisaical sense of self-worth. If I can show that I am better than someone else, anyone else, then I can think of myself as being worthy based on my assessment alone. I can place a value on myself that can be confirmed by repeatedly finding someone further down the moral ladder or something afoul with those further up, end quote. Whew, <laughs> mouthful, but how we do that oftentimes when we look at ourselves in the light of others around us, and certainly you and I can find people who just don't measure up to how great we are. And those who are greater than we are, we can find some sort of flaw. But you see, my friends, it's the holiness of God that reveals our true condition, not our comparison with others. And that was the problem with the Pharisees, these teachers of the law who had a way of finding fault in the lives of others, even when their own lives were far from righteous. They take, uh, for example, take the example found in Luke 18 of uh, the story of the poor widow who dropped her two copper coins as offerings. And listen to the words of Luke as he writes, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. And what happens with Isaiah, he see, sees the holiness of God. He looks upward and he sees the, the majesty of God. He looks at the Grand Canyon of the beauty of the formation of, of the earth. And I'm not sure if he did that. I'm just making a point. But he sees the, the, the majesty of God, the holiness of God. And cannot help but see his own loneliness and his own depravity. 
This is the bad news, church. This is the bad news of that the Bible tells us is our story, the story of, of a depraved humankind, of, of those who are not worthy. Those in every way have fallen short of the glory of God. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we don't see ourselves as we, as we should. But we look in the mirror of the Word of God and the Bible tells us our true condition, reveals our true nature of where we are and who we are and where we stand before God. The confession of our sins does not begin by pointing at everyone else's sins and shortcomings. Confession of sin doesn't say, I blame my parents for the way I am, or I blame my culture for the way I am, or I blame, my, blame nature for what I am. It's not my boss's fault. It's not my spouse's fault. It's not my kid's fault. True confession of sin looks at the heart. A true confession of sins begins not by pointing the finger at someone else's sins and shortcomings. It starts with me. It does not begin because of some kind of false introspection, but it's prompted when we see God. It results from seeing God as holy. If Brad gets to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I get to do so as well. I know he did that a couple weeks ago, and so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian during the days of Nazi Germany, and he says this, sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of the person. And this can happen even in the midst of pious community. Sin in the midst of pious community. That's the bad news. And this is, this is the truth of, of the Word of God that tells us as we really are, as we, as we have been. God knows, and beyond what anyone else can see, God can see to the heart. He sees not what man can see. Again, as, uh, as we looked at in the book of 1 Samuel, we know that God can look right through all of that pretense and see us as we truly are. He sees us when we're alone. He sees us when we're with our family and not with our church. He sees us as we really are. He, he knows us through and through. And this is the bad news, is, is the depravity of the human soul, the darkness of the human heart, that even in our sometimes best intentions can be tainted with, with motives that are selfish in nature. This is the bad news. But my friends, the same God that Isaiah saw in the throne room above that condemned him of his sin is the same God who comforts. The same God, the same God 
skip my pages here. In verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away, and your sin atoned for. One of the seraphim comes to Isaiah with tongs, and the grasp of those tongs is a live, burning, hot coal from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, and touches his lips because it's his lips that were unclean. He says, at that point of confession of his guilt, the atoning balm of sacrifice is applied as though in the very depiction of the majesty and greatness and incomprehensibility and purity of his God, he also discloses himself as the God who is full of grace and the God who is full of, of mercy. In this, his side of God that he had made, that he had, that had made him mor uh, mourn, uh, paradoxically, is the same side of God that will bring him comfort as well. Because you see, on the other side of confession, God isn't there to just rub our faces in our sinfulness, but to meet us with the promise of renewal. That by His Spirit, He will recreate uh, us from within, transformation from within, uh, fixer-upper from within. Confession leads to renewal. Confession, as we see, my friends, is a beautiful grace. You might call this gospel holiness, where God gives us grace for our, 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 our unholiness, and God gives us grace to grow in holiness at the same time. Confession is a way of lightening our load. Confession has a way of taking away the guilt of our sin. It has a way of bringing us back to health. It keeps us from returning to the same sin over and over again. It produces fellowship with other believers. Confession has a way of remedying this. Brian Chappell, a theologian and writer, says, Repentance is not about earning grace but entering it. Not about quenching His wrath but quieting the accusation of our hearts. Not about unlocking His mercy but releasing our sin-sick sorrow to the Savior who already rejoices to receive it. Amen. You know, when John in his gospel comes to comment on the sixth chapter of Isaiah, in John chapter 12, John says, the one whom Isaiah saw, the God that Isaiah saw in all of his majesty and purity and grace was none other than Jesus Christ himself. How fascinating that in Isaiah chapter 6, Again, it's quoted in John chapter 12 about Jesus. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the very words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would Heal them. And here Jesus is speaking about himself. The one that Isaiah saw was Christ himself. Isaiah said these things in verse 41 because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In a moment, by faith in Christ, we are justified before God. At that moment, the Father sees in his Son the very righteousness of Christ. And our sins counted to Jesus and atoned for on the altar of the cross and His holiness counted 
to us. This great exchange, this imputation, the fancy word of this placement of our sins upon, upon Jesus, and this beautiful imputation of, of the holiness of God, the holiness of Christ imputed to us. That's grace. That God does not leave us in our misery of our unholiness, that He makes us holy in our union with Christ. 